Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. But uh, I want to get to it. So I need, um, we're starting a new series today. I need a couple of volunteers. You don't have to get up. You don't even have to, you don't have to come up front. You don't even have to get out of your seat for this. But I need um, a couple of volunteers today. I need people who love chocolate. You love chocolate. All right, I need two people sitting beside each other who love chocolate. All right, Emma and Melody are going to be our chocolate chocolate lovers. You guys know Valentine's Day is only a couple weeks away, right? Two weeks from tomorrow, actually, I think is official Valentine's Day. So if you haven't gotten your sweetheart a Valentine's Day gift yet, you've got two weeks to get it done before you're in the doghouse, all right? So uh, get it done. I've always said that if you have to get your um, significant other a gift for Valentine's Day, then it's worthless. Like if you have to do it or you're in trouble, then it's worthless because then they're just doing it not to get in trouble. They don't even really love you at that point, right? It's like, so, so don't make them do it because then if you make them do it, it doesn't count as much, right? So I got two chocolate lovers. So I'm going to give you guys some special Valentine's Day candy today. But before I give those to you, you can eat those during the service. We're pretty laid back here, you know, so you can eat these during the service. Share them if you want. Be stingy if you want. Whatever, whatever makes your day, right? These are going to be yours um, when I'm all done. But before I do that, Emma, this is for you. I just want you to tell everybody what kind of candy is in that. Uh, it's Kit Kat, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and Hershey's Chocolate. Okay. And Melody, can you confirm this is the exact same is that one. I didn't cheat one of you. I didn't give either of you one you liked more than the other. And they're the same size. I'm not giving somebody a bigger one or smaller one. They're exactly the same. Is that right? Okay, so that one's yours. You guys open those up and grab whatever your favorite piece is out and just tackle it. You can tackle it right in front. You gotta love, that's why you have to love chocolate to do this, be this volunteer, okay? Can you guys both eat a piece? Oh, do you, is it childproof? Uh, Emma's is childproof there. It's got, it's got a piece of tape. It's really, uh, it's really stumping her there. So, all right. Melody, can you get a piece out of yours too and eat it? No. Why, was, why not? Yours is empty, but they looked exactly the same, didn't they? I mean, you guys verified before I even gave them to you that they were exactly the same. I had you look at them. They were the same size. They had the same pictures on them, the same Candy was being offered to you, but something was different about Melody's, right? It looked like a heart on the outside, but when she opened it up, it was empty. See, life has this way, and for the sake of our discussion today, we'll just go ahead and call life David, has this way of coming along and eating all the candy out of the inside of you, all right? So I'm not going to say what your life is, but in my world, life this week was David. He came along. He sucked all the goodness out inside of that heart. And life has this way of coming along and looking just like everybody else's life, but somehow on the inside, it's hollowed you out. It sucked out all the meaning, all the purpose and fulfillment. I need another chocolate lover. Another, this is a better gift even, chocolate lover. Tammy is chocolate lover. This is a Hershey's chocolate heart, all right? And then I need a chocolate and peanut butter lover. You'll be a chocolate and peanut butter lover for this one, so... Tiffany. That's Tiffany Jones now, by the way. So you guys can eat those during the service too, but if you get sick, you can't get up and leave during the service. You have to stay here. So, But you can eat those if you want. But All right, so I picked up these hearts this week, and I thought this would drive this home even better um, than that first illustration. But if you opened up that Hershey's chocolate heart 
and you took a bite into it, it'd be solid milk chocolate, right? Is that, okay, is that what it said? Okay. And if you opened up that Reese's heart, it would be chocolate on the outside and delicious peanut butter on the inside, right? And so uh, they're solid though, right? Okay, so every holiday stores do this. They take regular candy, shape it in something that has to do with the holiday, and then double the price and sell it to you. So at Christmas, it's Christmas trees, and at Valentine's Day, it's hearts, and at Easter, it's bunnies and all that stuff. It's the exact same candy, but somehow, because it's a different shape, we pay double for it. So, and uh, every year when I was growing up at Easter, my mom would always give us a little Easter basket, Easter candy, and, and this kind of reminded me of that this week. And you, in my basket, I would always get a white chocolate Easter bunny. I like white chocolate a lot, so my mom would always get me a white chocolate Easter bunny, and I'd open that up, and I'd take a bite out of it, and I'd love it, and I couldn't eat it all because I had to go to church, you know, so you had to wait to get home from church, like, because if you ate it all before church, then you, you know, you'd be sick at church, so, it, so I had to eat a couple pieces, a little bite here and there, and then I could go to church and eat the rest afterwards, and one year, I remember I woke up, and in my Easter basket was a white chocolate bunny, and it was the largest one I had ever gotten. I mean, it was probably, now, now they make these things that are like, you know, but back then, it was like, it was probably like this big. And I remember thinking like, that's awesome. I could eat, I couldn't wait to get home from church and, and dive into it, you know. And so we get back from church on that, that Easter Sunday. And of course, I go right for the white chocolate Easter bunny that's literally like about, you know, two feet big. And I'm thinking, this is going to be awesome. And I open it up and I take a bite into that Easter bunny and I was instantly disappointed. So it was hollow. They tricked me. They made it look bigger and better than all the other Easter bunnies I had gotten over the year. But when I bit into it, I found out it was empty on the inside. It looked just like all the other Easter bunnies, but it was not as good, was it? That's not right. You shouldn't do that to children. Don't be buying your children any more hollow candy, all right? Get them the real thing. Let them see what they're really getting. Don't try to pull the wool over their eyes. That's in the Bible somewhere, I think. Get them the real solid chocolate, all right? And uh, that's kind of what life is like, right? It can kind of sap you or come along and pull the life out of you from the inside. You know, the, the, the student that has spent thousands and thousands of dollars on college, years of their life, only to graduate and then be able, unable to find a job in the career they want. Or, or, or the, the woman who can't seem to find her Prince Charming that was promised to her in every Disney movie she watched growing up. Or the retirement date that keeps getting pushed further and further back and it seems like it's never going to come. What, what is it about life that has this way of taking all of our dreams and our expectations and kind of sucking the life out of the inside of them and leaving us thinking like, what's going on? Is there any meaning to any of this? Am I ever going to get fulfilled? Am I ever going to get what I've expected to get? Or is it always just going to be disappointment? Well, that's what this series is about, the meaning of life. How do you find the real meaning of life? Is there anything in the Bible about it? Well, there's this little book tucked into the middle of the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. It's uh, not often talked about in church and rarely is it preached through, but we're going to teach through the whole book over the next six weeks. It is written by King Solomon, and that whole book is about this question. What is the meaning of life? And it isn't just some words from a king or, or some information for you to consume. No, it's the, the record of his life experiences. He lived his life to discover what the meaning of it all was. 
And then he recorded it for us so we could see his observations. They're not just philosophies. They're his real-life journal of what he went through. So let me give you just a quick background on King Solomon. You may or may not have ever heard of him before, but a fairly like, famous historical character. But he wrote three books in the Bible. There's a little bit of uh, disagreement over whether or not he actually wrote Ecclesiastes. But to me, it seems pretty clear in the first verse of the book that he wrote it. And so uh, he wrote Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Those are three great books in the Bible, and they all cover three completely different pieces of life. And so uh, Solomon writes all three of them, and he writes all three of them at a different stage of life, which is awesome. Uh, He's the wisest, richest man to have ever lived, and we get a glimpse into what he was thinking and what he was experiencing when he was young, when he was middle-aged, and when he was old. The book of Song of Solomon, just this small little book written from the perspective of Solomon as a young husband and how much he loves his bride and what he wants their marriage to be like and how much he just adores her and is thankful to God for giving him a wife. And then you get to the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs is all about how to live a life of wisdom, a wise life. And and Solomon writes this book as kind of a middle-aged man who's living out a wise, as wise as he can life, and God has blessed him with all this wisdom, and he's recording down all these wise sayings for us that if we will follow them and do them, we will reap the benefits from them. And then you get to his old age, and he's looking back on life, and that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. He's kind of journaling his whole life, his experiences, looking back on it. It's almost as if you could view Ecclesiastes as like Solomon's journal or legacy that he wants to leave behind to his son. Hey, son, I've lived a long life, and I've experienced a lot of stuff, and I want to pass on to you all the lessons I've learned so that you won't have to go through the same mistakes and heartaches I went through. Now, isn't that something that almost every parent wants to do? That's the perspective in Ecclesiastes as King Solomon is an older man and he's jotting down all of the experiences he went through to discover what the true meaning of life is all about, what really matters in life. And he's going to leave it to his son. He's going to leave it down through history for us today. But that's kind of where we're at when we get to Ecclesiastes. And so he's going to dive in to this topic of what is life all about? I don't just want to read books on it. I want to do things and find out if this stuff matters, if this stuff makes me feel fulfilled, if this stuff completes me or not. So let me read you the opening or pieces of the opening paragraph from the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and then we'll talk about it for just a minute. Chapter 1, I'm going to start, I think, in verse 2. Here's what Solomon writes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. All is meaningless. We'll come back to that verse, but some translations will write that as vanity instead of meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, says the teacher. All is vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. All is meaningless. Some translations will say futile. Uh, Futile, meaningless, vanity. We'll come back to it. All right, go on here. Verse Four, I guess. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. Now see if you can get your mind inside of this older guy's thinking as he looks back on his life and kind of sums up what life is like, okay? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, then it blows north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the seas, but the sea is never full. Everything, then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome 
beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people will say, here's something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what's happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing right now. Aren't you encouraged? Do you feel encouraged? Life looks good now, doesn't it? Right. None of it really means or matters at all. None of it seems to make a difference. A couple years from now, nobody will be even talking about what we did today, what we've been talking about this year. A few generations from now, nobody will even remember you. The sea never fills up, yet water keeps running into it. The wind keeps blowing. Round and around it goes. Nothing new ever happens. It's all been done before. Go get them, killer. Are you pumped up? It can sound like he's depressed, like he's got a negative opinion of life, doesn't it? Like he's a grumpy old man. Isn't that what it sounds like? It's all meaningless. Meaningless, says the preacher. That's what he calls himself in this passage, the teacher, the preacher. Here's what it says in the uh, like New American Standard Version. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. I kind of mentioned that already, right? So what are we really talking about, this word here, vanity? Well, here's what we're not talking It can mean a lot of different things. So let's make sure we're all on the same page. Here's what it does not mean. You ready? It's not a mirror. Okay, we're not talking about a mirror today. We're not talking about a little makeup station at your house. Right? We're not talking about a cabinet with some sinks in it. These are all vanities, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the cover of a magazine. Right? We're not talking about any Smurfs. And I don't know what this is, but we're definitely not talking about this either. All right? I don't know what that is. That looks like vanity, but we're not talking about that. All right? Maybe we're talking about that one. I don't know. But let me give you our definition for vanity. This is the vanity we're actually talking about today. You ready? Here's what it, here's what it means. It's the quality of being val- valueless or futile. Futile. Meaningless. It's, it's like in vain. All of your effort is in vain. It produces nothing. It means nothing. It's something that has no meaning. It's, it's worthless. So here, here it is again, what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That's his conclusion about life. And he starts the book off with that. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't candy coat it. He's just like, let's just get right to it. I'm about to tell you a lot about life. It's all worthless. It's all meaningless. It's all going to end in vain. But he also follows it up by giving us a, 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 an example. An example so we can understand what he's talking about. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back through that passage. I want to pull out these two key phrases because they're going to come up all throughout the book. In fact, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, is mentioned in this 12-chapter book 16 times. That's encouraging, right? Worthless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. Let me say it 16 times in 12 chapters. And here's the example he gives us so we can understand it. He says, it's like chasing after the wind. Anybody ever try to catch the wind? Run around and grab it? That's what it's like, he says. Can you chase down the wind and catch it? 
Can you grab it and hold on to it? Because that's what life is like. It's like trying to grab a hold of the wind and hold on to it. How are you doing with that? Good, doing pretty good at that? Or? But he says this over and over again in the passage, like chasing after the wind. All right, here's the other phrase that comes up over and over again in the book. He uses this phrase over and over, under the sun, under the sun. He says that 20 times in 12 chapters, under the sun. And what he means by that is everything that exists in this world. Solomon's about to do a deep dive into what the meaning of life is, into what our purpose here is, if, if there is any purpose. And in that study, he's going to open himself up to all kinds of stimuli. He's going to take all kinds of approaches. He's going to try all, all different kinds of things. But the one thing he's not going to do the one restriction he's going to put on his investigation, the one limitation he's going to put on his experiences is he's only going to try things that exist on earth. He's going to exclude anything above the earth, above the sun. He's going to exclude anything you can't see or touch or tangibly observe or prove. He's going to leave out of this investigation anything to do with God, spirituality, ghosts, anything in the unseen world, right? That you might come up with, oh, the meaning of life is this, or the purpose of existence is all this. No, I'm going to leave all that out. You can't. He's going to investigate everything he possibly can, but he's not going to settle for something unprovable. So he's going to only try stuff under the sun, only stuff on earth. Now, some of you grew up in church or you're like real church, or you think you're like super Christian or whatever, you're like, I don't like that. Because it should all be about Jesus, right? So, okay. I want to encourage you to follow Solomon's exact same principle, limitation, exclusion for now. Do the same study he did. Be real honest with yourself for the next few weeks. And let's just examine the stuff that exists under the sun that we could give our lives to that we could devote our purpose in life to and see if you come up with the same conclusions on each of them that Solomon did or if you have a different opinion. That's, that's all I'm asking. I'm just asking you, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, whether this is your first time in church or your 1,000th time in church, I'm just asking all of us to do an honest examination of life without presuppositions as best we can, being honest with ourselves, not deceiving ourselves, but looking at the facts and deciding if any of these things that Solomon dives into are worth giving our whole life to. He gives us six of them. I'm going to cover two of them this week as quick as I can. Let me give them to you. And they're his solutions or his initial attempts to find meaning or purpose in life. So here's the first one, wisdom. All right. I know that one doesn't sound real fun. But there are people that would give their life to wisdom, to the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. This is where Solomon starts his investigation. He's going to dive into wisdom with all he's got, and there's no better candidate to do this than Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 4, God describes him as wiser than anyone who has ever lived, and he will be wiser than anyone who will come after him. 
And that all stems back from a conversation Solomon had with the Lord when he first became king. And God says, as king of Israel, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, give me wisdom. Give me understanding so that I can lead your people well. And God says, because you've asked for wisdom and you haven't asked for riches or long life or all this other stuff, I will give you the wisdom you're asking for and make you wiser than anyone who has ever or will ever live. And on top of that, because you asked for wisdom, I'll actually give you all the other stuff you didn't ask for. And I'll give you riches and fame and influence and a long life. I'll give you all those other things too. And so Solomon actually achieves this goal of becoming the wisest man ever in his deep dive into his wisdom, the meaning of life. There have been many people throughout many years who have tried to find the meaning of life from wisdom. Different gurus and and monks and people who would go off by themselves and isolate from the world simply to pursue wisdom and knowledge and understanding looking for the meaning of life. This is Solomon's situation as we start this study. So let me read you what he says about wisdom. In chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He says, I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. All right. Then you skip to chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. Here's what he's saying. Let's just stop right here for a second. He's saying like, I'm not just going to try to be wise. I'm going to try to experience everything on the spectrum of wisdom. From being a complete imbecile, right, to being the wisest guy in the world, I'm going to try it all. I'm going to try waiting for the traffic to pass before I cross the street. I'm going to try dodging between it like Frogger. You know, I'm going to try every, from being a complete fool to being super wise, I'm going to try to experience all the choices I can and see if it gives me meaning or purpose in this life. So I'm going to examine it from wisdom to foolishness, even to craziness, he says. I'm going to even act crazy and see if that gains me some perspective on life. I'm going to do it all. I want to experience all of it. This is what he said. He said, I thought to myself, wisdom must be better than foolishness, right? Just like light is better than darkness. For the wise person can see where they're going, but the fool just walks in the dark. That makes sense. I think almost everybody in the room, maybe everybody would agree with this idea. Don't you think it'd be better to be wise than be a fool? You almost never will find somebody who thinks they themselves are a fool. So almost everybody must think it's better to be wise than to be a fool. And Solomon concludes this same thing and says, I guess it'd be better to be wise because at least if you're wise, you kind of know what's happening around you. Not a complete fool who doesn't even know what's going on in the world. And so I acquire knowledge and I try to learn more and I try to get smarter and more clever and have deeper understanding. That was his first goal. That's where he started the project. Now, Here's his conclusions. Well, before I, I'll show you this picture, I brought this picture with me, a painting um, called The Judgment of Solomon. And there's a, several artists who have painted this throughout the centuries. But this is, just depicts kind of where Solomon got his start in the whole wisdom arena. It's a painting of two prostitutes who live together. They both have babies. 
and, and they, um, one night, one of the women rolls over in her sleep and smothers her baby to death. The other woman was still asleep, and so she wakes up, and she takes her dead baby, sneaks it into the bed of the other mother, takes her baby back to bed with her. When the other mother wakes up in the morning, kind of knows that's not her baby, says something about it, they get into this dispute. That's my baby. No, that's my baby. No, that's my baby. So they come before King Solomon to pass judgment. He listens to both of them, and he says, Here's what we're going to do. Take the living baby, cut it in half, and give half to each mother. Well, the real mother can't stand the thought of her baby dying. So she instantly says, no, no, no. Give the baby to the other woman. She would rather not raise her own child than to see it die. Solomon sees that and realizes she must be the child's real mother because only the real mother would care that much for her. And so he gives the, the baby back to the, the right mother. And then it says in the Bible that instantly after that, Solomon's wisdom and his fame spread throughout the world and kings and rulers started to send delegations to Solomon just to ask him for advice. That's how wise he became. He, he achieved this goal of experiencing and exploring all wisdom. And this is his conclusion. He gives two conclusions about it. His first conclusion is that wisdom only increases sadness. That's not good. Let, let me read it to you. Here's what he says back in chapter 1. He says, But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this, all of what? All of wisdom, is like chasing the wind. There's that idea again. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. In other words, the more answers he found, the more questions about life he had. Don't we all kind of find that to be true? The older you get, the more you learn, the more questions you have, the more you realize how little you actually know. It's like that old saying goes, the more you know, the more it hurts. And there is some truth to the idea that ignorance is bliss, right? And if you don't know about suffering that's going on other places, and if you don't know about heartache that's down the road for you, it doesn't stress you out as much. But once you know about it and understand it, now all of a sudden it hurts more. And so he realized this. He said, the wiser I got, the more I hurt. The more intelligent I became, the more understanding I gained, the more the world seemed to grieve me. So it's all meaningless, like chasing after the wind and trying to hold on to it. All right, he gives a second conclusion, though, to the pursuit of wisdom being the goal of life. And it's this. He says, the wise and the foolish person, they both die. All that wisdom, all that accumulation of understanding, it didn't get me one more day of life. In fact, sometimes the fool outlives the wise person. So why am I going after wisdom with all I got? Why is it my number one goal in life? It, it, it doesn't get me any more days. It, it, it just makes me more sad. Here, here's how he says it. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? 
This is all so meaningless. For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. No, I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun so troubling. Everything seems meaningless, like chasing the wind. You get what he's saying? Now, if you could be honest with yourself just for a second, don't you kind of agree with the things he's saying? The more you know, doesn't it kind of cause more grief? If you didn't know, you could kind of claim ignorance and be like, well, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. You know, like, Sam tries that all the time at home. I didn't know I was supposed to take the garbage out. I didn't know I was supposed to clean up after myself. Like, you see, but once you know, it causes more work. It causes more grief. You want a tip for work, how to not have to do more work? Just pretend like you don't know how to do anything. The boss will stop asking you to do stuff, right? It's like, and, and don't we both agree with the other? Just being a wise person doesn't guarantee you're going to live longer, does it? I mean, haven't all of us seen that one guy or that one girl, and we've been like, I don't even know how they're still living. They are so dumb. Everybody's thought that in the room. If you're being honest, you've all saw somebody. Don't poke your spouse. Everybody saw somebody and thought that before. How are they still even breathing? It's like they're too dumb to even breathe. You've all, what, you're thinking to yourself, they're a fool. They deserve to go before me. That's what you're thinking, right? But it doesn't work that way, does it? If you're being intellectually honest, you realize what Solomon's saying here about wisdom is true. Now, he's not saying wisdom is bad. He's not saying wisdom is evil. In fact, remember, he wrote a whole book of the Bible telling us the virtue of practicing wisdom, the book of Proverbs. And so you could read this and be like, that seems like a contradiction. But that's the point. Isn't life full of contradiction? That's what he's trying to point out. Isn't life full of this contradiction where you think like, I'll do all these wise things and I'll make all these wise choices, but then it still doesn't quite work out. And you're like, but I did the wise thing. I went to school. I studied hard. I got all A's. Where's the job? I followed Jesus. I looked for the right partner. I got married. They treated me like dirt. Why? I did all the wise things. I saved and planned for retirement. I mapped out the whole thing. And now you're saying I can't retire for five more years. It doesn't make any sense. It's all so pointless. doesn't mean it was the wrong things to do. It just means like, if that's the number one goal in life, get ready because it might just leave you empty on the inside. Like trying to hold on to the wind. All right, so here's the second one he dives into, pleasure. All right, I couldn't find the answer to life or the meaning of life in, in wisdom. Now I'm going to try pleasure. And he was perfectly positioned to try all the pleasures of the world because he's the king, right? And he's the richest person to have ever lived. So he's going to attempt to indulge in every pleasure he can. Here's what he says in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. Now, I'm not going to read them all to you. You can go back and read all of chapter 2 if you want to hear all these. But let me list them for you. Here's all the pleasures he tried. And you see if he experienced a lot of different pleasures or not. He started off trying alcohol. 
He tried drinking and intoxication. He said, I drank the finest wine, every alcoholic beverage I could find. I got wasted as much as I could to see if that would make me happy. I started to laugh, he says. I started to laugh, but I was like, what good is laughing? Doesn't accomplish anything. Doesn't get me anywhere. All right. He moves on from that, and he tries building huge homes. Does this sound like today still? Are people still doing the same stuff for pleasure? Okay. He tried to build huge homes and beautiful vineyards so that he could enjoy his life. It says he planted groves and groves of trees. He created parks to go and relax in. He made reservoirs of water and irrigation systems to keep everything flourishing in his gardens, in his groves, in his parks. He bought a bunch of slaves to serve his every need. He accumulated large flocks and herds of animals, which at that time was a sign of like great wealth and great high society. He could eat whenever he wanted to. He indulged in all kinds of food. He stored up riches and wealth for himself so much. Let me give you a comparison here. All right? So the richest person in our world today, anybody know who it is? Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk is the richest person in the world, uh, the founder and owner of uh, Tesla and now SpaceX, I guess, right? And so his, wor- his net worth is somewhere around $228 billion, the richest person in our world today. Solomon's adjusted net worth for today's inflation was $2.1 trillion, 10 times the richest person in our world today. In fact, if you took the 10 richest people in our world today, added all of their wealth together, you'd have to multiply that times two to get to the wealth of Solomon back then. In other words, he had the money to do anything and everything he wanted. And it wouldn't even like dent his wallet. And so he says, I denied myself no desire I had, no pleasure. Says he hired singers and entertainers to perform and keep him entertained every day. He married 300 women and added another 700 concubines to that. And so a thousand women were there every day to serve any fantasy or desire he had. Has he experienced a lot of pleasure? Has he tried a lot of different avenues of enjoyment? Alcohol and drugs and food and wealth and homes and possessions and women and everything. He tried it all, he says. I'm going to pursue pleasure with all I got. And he gives two conclusions to that pursuit too. Here's the two conclusions he gives to that, and I'll show them to you. First one was this. He said, I did all that stuff, and I realized by the end of it, none of it really lasted. None of it really endured for a long time. No matter how great the pleasure was, a minute, a day, a couple days, a couple months later, I wanted another one. I wanted more. It didn't last very long. Here's how he says it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says this, I found that this too, pleasure, was meaningless. What good does it do to seek pleasure? The only happiness that most people find during their brief life in this world. None of it really lasted. None of of it's going to get carried into eternity with me. It just... It's just like, once I was done, it was like, all right, what's next? What's next? 
I know some of you are sitting here thinking like, well, I'd like to give some of that a shot, right? Because you've never, but, but, but can we be honest about it for a second? Like just an honest look at it. If you were the guy that had all the money in all the world and you had everything that money could buy and you had everybody at your beck and call, can't you see how what he's saying is probably true that there will reach a point where you just be like, eh, whatever. Been there, done that. Had that already. Tried that. Built that. Another house? Eh, whatever. Can't you see how eventually it'd just be like, it's hard for us to see because we're not on that side of it. I mean, except for Sam. The rest of us are on the other poor side of it, you know. But it's like, it's hard to see that side of it, right? But imagine if money was no object. And if everybody had to do whatever you said because you were the king. You'd reach this point where it'd just be kind of like, eh, whatever. It's not going to last. He gives a second observation about this pursuit of pleasure. And he says this. It actually doesn't accomplish anything, pleasure. Like, it's fun. Makes me laugh. Makes me feel good. But what's it really do? doesn't really make a difference. Here's how he says it in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, as I looked at everything I had accomplished, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. None of it really made a difference, he says. None of it really mattered. I don't know. I mean, think about it. What does pleasure actually accomplish? No matter how good you feel or how well-rested you are or how great the meal was, you'll be hungry again, aren't you? No matter how great the relationship is, you're going to want more the next day. No matter how much money somebody hands you, you're going to eventually want more of it. Like it just doesn't seem to ever be enough or ever accomplish anything at all. Wisdom, Solomon says, no good. It's worthless, like chasing after the wind. Pleasure, it's fun, makes me laugh, but not really meaningful. See, we all have this deep sense inside of us of oughtness. You know what oughtness is? It's like, well, it ought to go that way or it ought to be this way. But what happens when life doesn't go the way it ought to go? What happens when life doesn't follow the blueprint we've mapped out? We're left hollow on the inside. If we run to wisdom, it's going to not be enough. It's going to just make us more sad. And it's going to make us look around and see foolish people that are dying after us. If we run to just every pleasure we can think of to satisfy ourselves, it's going to leave us looking for another fix. It's going to make us think we haven't accomplished anything in this world. Now hear me again. He's not saying that wisdom is evil. He's not saying that pleasure is bad. In fact, throughout this book, he's going to say the opposite. He's going to say, like, live wisely and, and go after some pleasure. Enjoy your life. In fact, at one point he says, don't, just don't be too wise and don't be too foolish. But be a little foolish sometimes and be wise sometimes. He's going to say, don't don't go off on your own somewhere and hide in the woods and don't enjoy any pleasures of life. No, live your life and enjoy it. But if wisdom is everything, if my life is only complete when I add the next degree, if pleasure is everything, if my life is only complete when I get the next high, 
It's all worthless. It's not going to matter. Why would any of that matter down the road? He's kind of offering us this look inside the human psyche from an older person looking back on life. It's something that all of us know deep down inside of us, although we often tend to live like we don't believe it's true. Here's what he's really saying. He's saying nothing in this life is solid enough to actually hold on to. It could all be taken from you like that. And even if it isn't taken from you, it's never really going to be enough to make you feel filled on the inside. It's going to be like biting into a hollow chocolate bunny. It might taste good. It might look like the rest of the candy. But on the inside, it's going to be hollowed out. See, it's a perspective from a life that he spent experiencing all the wisdom and pleasure the world could offer. You don't have to experience it for yourself. He's already done it, and he realized that it all kind of came up short. Here's how he said it again, right? Vanity of vanities. Meaningless, he says. Now that word, vanity. I said he repeats it 16 different phrases of this in this book. But it only comes up one time in the New Testament. It's in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 20, this same word. And he says, Against its will, all of creation was subjected to futility. It's that same word, to vanity, to meaninglessness. Against our will, against our will, Paul writes, all of us, have been exposed and subjected to a life of meaninglessness. That isn't the end of the verse. Second half of verse 20 says this, but still with hope. Still with eager hope. Okay, so against our will, God has made us all live a life of meaninglessness. But we're still supposed to have hope. We still have some hope. The hope we have is in the next verse, verse 21. Here's what it says. The whole creation looks forward to the day when it will join all of God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Now, you could read all of Romans chapter 8 or your own great chapter in the Bible. But here's what he's saying. All of us against our will are living a life that is full of futility. It's worthless. It's got no meaning as long as you pursue things under the sun. The only hope we have is looking forward to the day when we will join all of God's children and be freed from this life. Freed from death and decay. He goes on to say that freedom is made available because Jesus decided to come from above the sun, under the sun, to buy your freedom. And that's the only hope you have in this life. Okay, I'm not asking you to become a Christian today. That'd be awesome. I'm not asking you to get baptized in three weeks. That'd be great. All I'm asking you to do today is just to be honest. Just be honest with yourself for a second. Just look at the first two we've looked at. Is wisdom really what life is all about? If you, had, if you have 10 advanced college degrees and you got the 11th one, would it make a difference? If you've drank for 10 years, 
and you drink for 10 more, will it be any different? If you got one wife and she's a pain in the neck, would the next one be any different? Wait a second. If, if you had three girlfriends and you got a fourth one, would it be any different? Can you just be honest for a second? Is he right or not? Is the pursuit of understanding and knowledge and wisdom, it's not a bad thing, but is it, is it what life's all about? And how about pleasure? It's nice to feel good. It's nice to kick back, relax, and have money. It's all good, but is that really what life is all about? Or are the things he said true? Do they not really get you any more days of life? Do they really not last very long? Do you look around and feel like this hasn't accomplished anything? Okay, yeah, so I drank and I hung out with my buddies and I got another girlfriend and I got, I got all A's and all that, but like, what have I really done with my life? Is he right? That's all I'm asking you to decide today. Then come back next week. We'll dive into two more. Can we do that? Let's just study through God's word and be honest about it. Is wisdom and pleasure all there really is? Or is Solomon right on? Has he got this one right, that there's got to be something else? And if there isn't, we're doomed. Let me pray with you. Dear God, I thank you for our church. Thank you for their willingness to study your word, to learn from you. God, I pray you would open our eyes and open our hearts to have an understanding of what, you've, what you're teaching us in this book of Ecclesiastes, that you would reveal to each of us by the end of the six weeks the true meaning in life, the only things in life that are actually worth pursuing with all of our heart. God, would you make those things obvious to us? In Jesus' name I pray. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than a life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.